If you have Bibles, I'm going to direct the, uh, your attention in them uh, to the Gospel of John. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17 is where we find ourselves this morning. Uh, and if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, I did not mention them, but now I will. Uh, under those same seats where those cards are found, the high cards and prayer cards, you'll find a black hardcover Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that with you today. Uh, that's our gift to you. You're also, of course, welcome to use them. And if you are, page 900 uh, is where you'll find today's text. We have uh, reached the end of what we've called our Rhythms of Grace uh, series. But that means that really now we are embarking on the far more important part of putting and continuing to put these rhythms uh, into practice. So days and weeks and months and years from now, uh, I'm confident you will remember little to nothing of what we covered uh, in these sermons over the past weeks. But I hope uh, that because of studying these things, because of contemplating these things, uh, that your life individually and our life together in community will be increasingly characterized by these nine pursuits. What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus Christ? That is the, the big question that we have been seeking to answer during this series. And the answers that we've considered are these practices of, daily, of, uh, of gathered worship, daily prayer and Bible study, Sabbath, bodily consecration, relational pursuit, one that we're calling one anothering through spiritual gifts, mission, generosity, and now lastly, today's focus, service, the rhythm of service. What is service? Uh, here's some of the words that we're using to describe what we mean when we say service. We seek out opportunities to help people and institutions, including our own local church. Our time, our talents, in addition to our treasures come into view in our efforts to serve both the church and the world. Our service nurtures God's will in the world, and it delivers people from hardship and suffering. As we say in our In Covenant class, we hold one another accountable to dream and to act in ways that are a blessing to our neighbor. Now you might rightfully ask this morning, what's the difference between service and mission? which is something that we considered a couple weeks ago. There's a lot of overlap between these two rhythms, service and mission, particularly that aspect of mission, which is through deeds, through showing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what I would invite you to consider this morning is this. Mission reminds us that you and I are part of God's eternal work in the world, which is work that cannot and work that will not fail. It is work that is making all things new, is reconciling all things under Jesus. So amen to that and the work of the mission of God. But there can be, and there often is, an over-realized and a misplaced triumphalism that creeps its way into our hearts, into our minds, when the victory of God's mission, true as it is, is the only lens through which we see. And so service reminds us of our place and of the posture that we assume as participants in this mission of God. Service reminds us that though God indeed wins, the need of the hour, the present need in this time between the already of what Christ has accomplished and the not yet of the fulfillment of all that he's promised is for us to be servants and to serve not only God, but to serve one another and to serve others in this world that God loves and into which he has called us. A pastor and an author named Tim Keller writes this. He says, becoming a Christian is not like signing up for a gym. 
It is not a living well program that will help you flourish and realize your potential. Christianity is not another vendor supplying spiritual services you engage as long as it meets your needs at a reasonable cost. Christian faith is not a negotiation, but a surrender. It means to take your hands off your life. What a critical paradigm and critical reminder as we conclude this series. The rhythms of grace are not and can never become nine steps to living well. They, they are instead nine elements of what it looks like to pry your own hands off of your life, to live faithfully in surrender to God. And perhaps no rhythm helps us see that more clearly than this rhythm of service. And so this morning, let us consider what it is to live lives of service by considering the one who came, as we read earlier, not to be served, but to serve. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I'll start in verse 1 and then read down through verse 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. This morning we ask that you would open our eyes to see it, that you would open our ears to hear it, that you would open our hearts to hold it, and that you would open our hands to serve it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things uh, for us to see from John chapter 13 this morning. The scandal of service, the posture of service, and the paradox of service. So first, the scandal of service. Uh, most scholars typically divide the Gospel of John into two halves. So the first 12 chapters are often called the Book of Signs. The second half, which begins here with the text we're in today, chapter 13, is called the Book of Glory. 
And it's called that because here in the second half of the Gospel of John, the focus shifts from the life and the ministry of Jesus on earth to a very specific and direct focus on the cross. And Jesus begins preparing his disciples for his death and then for their lives on this earth without his physical presence. But as they celebrate the Passover together in the upper room, as Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper, and as he will speak what has now become known as his upper room discourse, as he's preparing to then pray what's known as his high priestly prayer, where he prays for not only those disciples, but for all who would come after him, which includes us, the beginning of the book of glory is an action that is anything but glorious. Feet uh, have never been a particularly attractive or appealing part of the human anatomy. But in the first century, feet were plain gross. They were gross because roads were unpaved and because people wore sandals if they wore anything at all, feet were dirty. And because roads were shared with livestock and there was nothing like a modern day sewage system that we have now, feet smelled really bad. So in this culture, foot washing was a task reserved for the lowest person on the totem pole, the lowliest slave. In some traditions, it wasn't even permissible for a Jewish servant to perform this task because it was beneath them. So it was a task that was reserved for Gentile slaves. And yet, here is Jesus, the, the, the promised descendant of Abraham, the great King David's greater son, removing his outer garments, undignifying himself in that way, tying a towel around his waist, kneeling bending down at the dirty feet, not of his superiors, but of his followers. In this culture, disciples were supposed to be covered in the dust of their rabbi's feet, not to have their rabbi wash the dust from their own. And so what we see in John chapter 13 is that in the kingdom of God, service is scandalous. Service is scandalous. It surprises, it upsets, it scandalizes both the recipients of it and the observers of it. And notice here how it scandalizes even those who know Jesus best and who are closest to him. Verses six through eight, Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then he goes on to say, you shall never wash my feet. He can't bear this thought of how backwards this whole scenario is. In our culture today, in this present moment, we have very little sense of deference and respect for authority. Now, to be fair, uh, there is something good about a more level playing field and avoiding the abuses that come with hierarchy. But what often replaces deference in our culture is a sense of entitlement, a sense of expectation, where we begin to expect other people to serve us, where we begin to expect other people to be as concerned about me as I am about me. And when that happens, the depth of the scandal in John 13 becomes lost on us. Because through our lenses, we can even begin to think things like, well, of course the Son of God should serve like this. Maybe even God exists primarily for my good and my benefit, to make my life better. But you need to know this morning, that sense of entitlement, that sense of expectation would be completely alien to a first century Jew like Peter. This week, I, I thought about a friend of mine who's of Korean descent. And I thought about how in his everyday life and interactions, he conveys such respect uh, to his employers, to his mentors, to those older than he is. I'm a, a few years younger than him, but I've been in a, a mentor role with him in, in recent months. 
And I can think of few other relationships in my life where there's such this baseline level of deference, where any kind of help uh, or gesture or kind word that I offer him is met by him always with surprise almost and gratitude. Like, I can't believe you would go out of your way to do something like that for me. Two things. One, you probably wouldn't mind more people in your life like that. Uh, because my bet is that most of your interactions with your coworkers or your kids or whoever else you cross paths with don't sound a lot like that. But two, there is not a doubt in my mind that my friend intuitively grasps the scandal of Jesus' actions in John 13 better than I do and better than almost all of us do. Because this is a shocking upending of how things normally operate. And therein lies the beauty. And therein lies the beauty. Notice something else in John chapter 13. Jesus' service would be scandalous enough if it only included his friends, but it also includes his enemies. All of the original 12 are in the room for this, including, as the text says, Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. One who had already at this point made the arrangements and who in just a few hours from this point would lead a band of armed soldiers to capture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But Judas, if you follow the text further, he doesn't leave the company of the disciples till down in verse 30, which means that Jesus washed Judas' feet too. Jesus washed Judas' feet too. And even if that scandal that Peter feels here is lost on us, surely we can appreciate the scandal of that. Because who helps their enemies? Who takes up the task of the lowliest servant in order to serve someone who intends to do them great harm? This will, if we're reading it correctly, it will grate against our sense of justice, our sense of what is right. But that is precisely the point. Service is scandalous because it sets aside the normal order of things. It goes beyond what we would expect, beyond even what seems right and good, all the way to the undeserved and the ill-deserved mercy and grace of God. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says in his Sermon on the Plain, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. John chapter 13 is one of the many evidences we have of Jesus' life where this is not just mere talk for him. That he is the flesh and blood demonstration of the scandalous mercy of God. So let this, as you read it, as you contemplate John 13, let it scandalize you the way it would scandalize the original audience. And let that scandal move you to this place of awe and astonishment, which really is the essence of worship and is the essence of gratitude rather than expectation or entitlement. And not only that, let this shape our pursuit of service and our posture of service, which is the second thing that we'll talk about. So not only the scandal of service, but second, let's talk about the posture of service. Uh, a few decades ago, uh, a man named Robertson McQuilkin was the uh, president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina. And in the mid-1980s, uh, his wife Muriel was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, uh, and she began to, over those next couple years, deteriorate fairly rapidly. Uh, many of McQuilkin's friends encouraged him to place her in professional care 
and especially as she got worse, to place her in a nursing home so that he could continue on with the very important work of leading a seminary in a Bible college. But as her condition worsened, uh, McQuilkin made this decision that he called a matter of integrity, which meant to resign from Columbia so that he could care for his wife full-time. Another man named Henri Nouwen, sometimes called Henry Nouwen, uh, was a Catholic priest, prolific author, uh, who taught at Notre Dame, taught at Yale, taught at Harvard. In 1986, he decided to leave all of that behind uh, and to move into a community called L'Arc Daybreak in Ontario, where he would be part of helping care for 100 people uh, suffering from intellectual and developmental disabilities. A woman named Helen Rosevere uh, was a medical student in England. Uh, she became a Christian in 1945, and it completely altered the trajectory of her life. She decided to serve as a missionary to the Congo. During her time in the Congo, the Congo won its independence, became independent from Belgium, and a civil war broke out a few years after that. And so all of the medical clinics that she'd helped establish, nearly 50 of them at the time, were destroyed. She was imprisoned, uh, and she suffered in that imprisonment immensely. She was beaten. She suffered sexual assault. It was terrible. Eventually, she was freed, and she was able to return to England. But less than two years later, she went back to the Congo, and she served seven more years before her failing health finally led her back to the UK permanently. As I read uh, the stories of these men and women and a few others this, these past weeks, uh, I've noticed a common theme, and even more than that, a common posture. Namely, that Christian service, that service as a rhythm of grace, is marked by humble joy. Humble joy. Each of these individuals took what would be almost universally considered a lower place than they were equipped, than they were suited for. And notice this, none of them were wasting their lives beforehand. It wasn't like a radical conversion from like being an alcoholic or gambler and then doing something productive with their life. One was a seminary president, one was an Ivy League educator, one was a medical student. But led by God, each of them stepped out of what are good and worthwhile pursuits into a less esteemed, more obscure, more humble opportunity to serve. And not only that, they did it with joy. If you read up on these people, I would encourage you to do it if you have the, the opportunity. You'll find writings and interviews with each of them who speak about the joy that they found in these things, in caring for and, and knowing more deeply a spouse, in seeing the worth, in seeing more deeply the image of God in people who the world writes off, and even in suffering. Helen Rosevere's perspective is particularly uh, incredible. She was invited to give an address in 1976 at Urbana, which is this um, large conference on global mission. And there she said this about her service. One word became unbelievably clear, and that word was privilege. God didn't take away pain or cruelty or humiliation. No, it was all there. But now it was altogether different. And looking back, one has tried to count the cost, but I find it all swallowed up in privilege. The cost suddenly seems very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of privilege. How does someone say that? How does someone say that? Because I'll be honest, that is not my perspective much of the time. Maybe you can relate to me. Maybe you're more like Helen Rosevere and are just much more godly than I am. But in reading about these men and women, it has simultaneously for me nourished my soul and it has cut me to the core. 
And it's been particularly poignant because recently I have been consumed in my own heart by counting the cost. And not only counting the cost, but bemoaning the cost. The hours, the physical and emotional and spiritual toll that it takes to really pour yourself out to try to care for other people and serve other people. So how is this possible? How might we not only grow in the rhythm of service, but also practice service with this kind of posture? And what I would submit to you this morning is that the only way this is going to be possible at all is for you and I to turn our eyes upon Jesus. As he himself says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you, Jesus says, an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. It's Jesus' posture in his service that is echoed in these later examples of the Robertson McQuilkins and the Henri Nouwens and the Helen Roseveres of the world. This humble joy. It's Jesus's and it's echoed in ours and saints throughout history. We read in scripture, we see it here in John 13, we, we see it even more clearly in other aspects, of, in other parts of scripture. Philippians 2 magnifies the humility of Jesus and we looked at it this morning in the words of encouragement. It says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took the form of a servant. And then passages like Hebrews chapter 12 magnify the joy. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So in following the example of Jesus, this same humble joy is ours. And and Jesus concludes this part of the Gospel of John in chapter 17 by saying, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So there is blessing for us in not merely hearing the word of God, but in doing the word of God. And in our culture and our day, many of the examples of service, you know, community service and charity and things like that, are so desperately trying to get at this same thing. And it's why you'll hear people encourage service and talk about service by talking about the benefits that come from it, how good you'll feel if you serve other people, how how good it will look if you put that on your college resume or your college application or your, your business resume. But the real primary benefit that we're meant to experience, the real blessing, as Jesus puts it here, is to remember in our service, we remember in that moment that we are not greater than our master. The real blessing is that when we follow the example Jesus has given us to take that lower place, we become formed increasingly as people of humble joy. When we find ourselves, as you do, as I do, begrudging in our service, when we find ourselves to be reluctant servants, it's almost never because we're serving too much. It's almost never because we're serving too much. It's because your eyes are on yourself rather than Jesus. It's because when I bemoan the cost of serving, it's almost always because my eyes are on myself rather than on Jesus. And the examples that I shared earlier, they're they're these grandiose kinds of examples. And they're really helpful because they let us see clearly what this posture of humble joy looks like. 
but grandiose gestures of service are built upon tens of thousands of small, daily, mundane, ordinary decisions to serve. Examples that are so obscure, uh, examples that are so without recognition or esteem that we'll never hear about them. Doing the dishes when it's not your turn. Caring for an elderly parent or friend or spouse or sibling. Cooking and cleaning to maintain a home in service of a family. To get coffee for your intern rather than expecting your intern to get coffee for you. To volunteer in the nursery or the kids' ministry of your church even when you don't feel particularly passionate or gifted with children. Service is this critical counterpart, this critical ballast to spiritual gifts where we don't just only do the things that we're good at, we do things that will genuinely help and benefit other people. And this example of Jesus, the Son of God, taking the place of a Gentile slave, it forever keeps us from concluding that there are certain roles or certain acts of service that are beneath us. So very little, if any, of your service in your life will be grandiose. But in all of it, the ordinary, mundane, routine service, you can mirror the example of Christ. And in all of it, you can emit the aroma of Christ. In all of it, you will become increasingly transformed into a person of humble joy. Third and finally, let's talk about the paradox of service. Paradox of service. Uh, you may have noticed I've gone a little bit out of order in our text this morning. Uh, and that's because even more than following the example of Jesus, there is a more fundamental answer to this question of how we become people characterized by service. And the answer is this, that like Peter, like the disciples, we must receive service before we can truly give it. We must receive service before we can truly give it. If we are to be servants following in the footsteps of Jesus, then we must first be served by Jesus. And this is the paradox of service. This is the paradox of it. And it's central to what John writes in his gospel in John 13. Foot washing is both a literal act of service and a symbolic act, which is showing our need to be cleansed and to be washed by Jesus. And this is what Jesus means when he says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it uh, in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Many of you might use that resource with your kids. Fantastic resource. She puts it this way. Jesus knew that what people needed most was to be clean on the inside and that all the dirt on their feet was nothing compared to the sin inside their hearts. Spiritual washing, heart cleansing, that's going to come through the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is what he's in the midst of preparing his disciples for in this moment. So he not only is going to, in this moment, call them to follow his example, he's going to enact a picture of the gospel. And as we've seen, it's scandalous. It's scandalous to Peter. And remember, Peter is not someone who lacks zeal or who lacks willingness to work hard and to serve. He's the one who on the Mount of Transfiguration offers to build tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus because he doesn't know what else to do. He's the one who a few hours after this is going to pull out his sword in this misguided attempt to physically defend Jesus. So as John Calvin puts it, since Christ is his Lord and Master, it seems absurd to Peter that Christ should wash his feet. But in refusing such a service, Peter rejects the principal part of his own salvation. 
if we attempt to serve others, to be servants, merely to follow Christ's example, we will likewise reject the principal part of our own salvation. It makes all the difference in the world to pursue service as a rhythm of grace, as a reflexive response to the mercy and grace of God, as opposed to an attempt to earn something from God, as an attempt to prove something to God or prove something to other people or prove something even to yourself. And some of the hardest working, most diligent, most sacrificial servants in the world reject the principal part of their own salvation. And it's because they refuse to first be served. Particularly in our culture in the West, it's offensive, it's scandalous to independent, self-sufficiently minded people that we must first and we must always receive. But this is truly, friends, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to place your trust in the finished work of Jesus, the cleansing work of Jesus' death and resurrection, and to receive his service of you is where we begin following Christ. And it's the only pathway, it's the only way to actually follow in Jesus' example of this. As one scholar puts it, it's impossible for us to imitate this lowly role of Jesus unless we have a clear understanding of what he's done for us. Jesus only expects his disciples to wash someone else's feet after they have been washed themselves. And so this morning, I'll leave you with the same question that Jesus first poses to his disciples after he redresses and returns and rejoins them at the table. Do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand what I have done for you? Men and women, do you understand what Jesus Christ has done for you? Do you understand even a fraction of the humility it would take to empty yourself of the glories of heaven, of the humility it would take to create all things that exist, and yet to enter into that creation, not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many. We say this to children when we baptize them here at this church. This is true for you. Friends, for you, Jesus Christ came into the world. For you, he died. For you, he conquered death. All this he has done for you. Do we understand? Do we understand? The disciples in the upper room understood in part. They would understand more fully when they saw Jesus go to the cross and then throughout the rest of their lives. We likewise see this oh so dimly most of the time in our lives. But to the extent that we do see this, to the extent that we do understand what Jesus has done for us, we will pour out our lives in service and we will pour out our lives in service with humble joy. So may you, this morning, this week, and always, look upon Jesus. May you trust in his finished work and therein receive the service of his life poured out for you. It is scandalous, no doubt, but it is your salvation. And in response to it, may we live our lives serving others to mirror the service that we ourselves have received from Jesus. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you have done something beyond comprehension. And we will never understand fully in this life. We will never be able to answer your question. Do you understand what I have done for you? We can say, 
yes and no this morning. We can say yes. We see that you've gone to the cross, you've died, you've risen again to serve us, to invite us into your kingdom, to pay the penalty for our sin, to wash and cleanse us. But we do not, and our minds are so limited, we cannot fully grasp the humility it took to do that. And that you would do it with joy defies comprehension as well. But we pray this morning, Jesus, that you would help us to understand as clearly as we might, that we would, even as we come to this table, look upon your work, look upon your service, your sacrifice on our behalf, and that we would see in it our salvation, and that we would see in it an example that you have called us to follow. Make us, form us into those who serve. But may we first, as we now enact again, be recipients of your service of us. We pray this in your name. Amen.